This morning we mentioned that the program that aired today, Good News Today, featured Wesley Simons in the interview we did with Wesley when he was here for the gospel meeting, and the interview about his conversion and about the tract that was instrumental in his conversion. We'd been looking forward to trying to do that, and uh, we were finally able to do it when we had Wesley here and appreciated his willingness to do that, and he did a wonderful job in that interview. And uh, thus far, we have had 38 uh, calls on the answer machine requesting uh, that tract, either one or more of the tracks, and there was one online, that's 39, a request online. And when you consider, we only have one line. Uh, we don't have a rollover uh, situation. I hope we'll have to uh, soon because of the volume of calls. But when you consider that uh, someone calls and it rings six times before they get that, and we're trying to work on getting that cut down a little bit, actually. But 38 uh, calls um, just uh, this morning since the program aired uh, requesting those free booklets is very encouraging, very exciting. And, of course, that program has not even aired yet in Memphis, uh, I don't believe. I think it will air uh, this coming Wednesday night at 9.30. That's when we're on the prime, primary time in Memphis. So that uh, could produce even more. And there may be others who couldn't get through who will continue to call back, we hope. So we hope to see those numbers go up. And who knows? Who knows uh, how many hands into which that track may fall ultimately as a result of those who are requesting it. I can remember that when we would do some campaign work in Africa, Rod Rutherford and Brenda, who are now in Gatlinburg there, and Rod would uh, distribute tracks. We were talking about distribution of tracks. He said that the statistics say that uh, for every tract that is given out before it is finally disposed of or lost or whatever, 12 people, average, uh, an average of 12 people will read, will read that tract. And so if that statistic holds true, then ultimately you could multiply our number of requests by 12, potentially, of uh, those who will ultimately have access to that tract. And if you're not familiar with the tract, something is wrong, but the Bible is right. Uh, it is extremely thorough and very comprehensive. And uh, when one has that in one's hands, then he has or she has all uh, that is needed to learn enough truth to certainly, uh, as Wesley Simons did, walk into this building one day and obey the gospel of Christ after he had studied with uh, a man named John who had put that tract into his hand. And, and Brother Eddie Kraft was uh, uh, converted. And who knows, Billy, how many other family members have been affected uh, uh, by that uh, track favorably, and who knows how many will be. But, but the thing is, Wesley's being influenced by that tract, as we said when he was here in the meeting. Look at how many souls he has been able to reach, and Eddie have, uh, has been able to reach. And a lot of it goes back to someone taking enough interest uh, to put that tract in his hand and to spend time with him studying. So uh, we just do not know where... Our efforts will ultimately lead, but we're excited about that initial response to uh, the program today. It is also said that for everyone who responds, I don't know how many listeners or viewers you can count who are there who don't respond, but who are, who are watching. But it would be probably multiplied by far more than 12, even in that situation. So uh, we're very pleased, and I wanted to share that good news with you about good news today and about uh, the track that White Oak's been publishing for Oh, many, many years, I think 1954 maybe, when it was first written. Uh, and uh, 
Janice got an order for tracks from a congregation going into a uh, going on to a mission trip, uh, overseas mission trip, I think, and wanted to take a hundred, I believe, three hundred, three hundred of those tracks with them on the mission trip. So that tract has done and is continuing to do an awful lot of good. We appreciate that. We are studying First uh, Thessalonians, Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, but as we have said, also. Uh, Paul's first epistle, written in about A.D. 52 or 53 uh, from the city of Corinth, it is believed. And uh, as he wrote to this church, he expressed uh, a tremendous confidence and appreciation in them and also the deepest possible affection. And one of the expressions we'll see tonight in the verses we will be studying in chapter 2 as we begin that chapter is an expression that is used only here. Uh, one time in 1 Thessalonians, and um, it is uh, an expression that indicates the deepest possible affection, the kind of affection that would cause one to die for those for whom that affection is being expressed. So we'll see that as we, uh, as we look tonight at the first uh, 12 verses uh, of uh, chapter 2, and then, uh, the Lord willing, next time, verses 13 through 20, as we look at this chapter in two separate Lessons. Let's read these verses together. I'm reading from the New King James translation. Uh, here, uh, beginning in chapter 2, Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So much here to appreciate and from which to learn as we see how Paul continues to address this church at Thessalonica. And in the section we are looking at, he begins in this section by saying, you know, first of all, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty, the idea of vain here being empty or useless. You know yourself. You are living proof. And your actions following the conversion of you certainly demonstrate that there is fruit that is being born at Thessalonica. That our coming to you produced that kind of fruit because of the power of the gospel. You can look at yourselves. You can look at the influence you are having. You can look at the good that is being done, you can look at the changes that have been effected in your lives and you can see that our entrance into you or our coming to you with the gospel initially 
was not in vain. And we need to appreciate the fact that whenever we go anywhere with the gospel of Christ, it is not in vain. It may not always produce the same kind of fruit or result that, that Paul's coming to Thessalonica produced. We may not be able to establish a thriving church as we go into areas where the church has not been planted and seek to plant the church. Or the church may be planted and not flourish as well as it did here. That depends upon the hunger that exists in those areas into which we go. But we also know that as we go, even, even if there is no visible fruit to be seen immediately or even ultimately as a result of our going, we nonetheless are charged with the responsibility to go with the gospel into all the world and that as we go, even if we don't see those visible fruits, we can still say that our going was not in vain. Why not? Because the Lord charged us to go into all the world with the gospel. And God has said that his word would not return void. Our responsibility is not to go into the world and baptize every creature. We've said that before. Our responsibility is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's up to the individual. Our responsibility is to get the word to them in the most effective, loving, considerate, and compassionate, yet uncompromising way that we possibly can. And to use every means that we have in order to do that. And to do it with the greatest urgency. Because, as we have said before, men and women are dying at a rate of a hundred more, or more, about 107 every minute. 107 every minute going into eternity. And so the word will not return void, and God will be pleased with our efforts. But here, Paul is calling attention to the visible fruit that obviously resulted from his coming to Thessalonica. And then he reminds, and we talked about a little bit uh, this uh, a little bit in Bible class this morning here in the auditorium. He says in verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spiritually, uh, spitefully treated rather at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Notice this, in much conflict, in much conflict, with much agony, is literally the word here that's involved in this word conflict and the word agony as it is used in the original here is the idea initially of the agony of competition that is exerted, the agonizing effort that athletes make when they are involved in athletic competition. The Olympic Games, the Grecian Games would be uh, under consideration initially here. You remember that old ABC Sports uh, uh, entrance on the ABC Wide World of Sports years ago, the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, it's not just the agony of defeat, it's the agony of competition, that exertion. But of course, when you exert to that extent and then you're defeated, that may intensify the agony. But that's the figure that is used, much conflict, much agony, much striving. And of course, here, He's talking about the conflict that occurred at Thessalonica. He's talking about the conflict that he had endured before as he refers to the spiteful treatment that they received at Philippi. And as we mentioned in Bible class this morning, what indeed if Paul had been some sort of uh, fraud? What if he had been a charlatan of sorts? What if he had been uh, seeking to preach only for what he could gain, for covetousness and uh, for the uh, possibility of, of gaining great glory and honor or monetary remuneration for his preaching. Don't you think that what he suffered at Philippi might have caused him to rethink that position? 
Well, obviously he was not preaching for the wrong reasons. He was truly converted and he was truly convicted and conviction leads to the willingness to endure conflict. And that's what he reminds them of here. Because of conviction, he was determined to continue to preach the gospel even in much conflict. And as we said this morning, it reflects upon his conversion and the fact that his conversion was not some uh, hallucination. It was not some, uh, some uh, subjective experience. It was real. Uh, it, uh, it was valid. And it produced in him a conversion that was genuine and was proved to be by what he was willing to suffer. And this is one example of that suffering. In much conflict. But notice this. We were bold in our God. And that's the key. We need to appreciate the fact that we too can be bold in our God. The boldness needs to be in God and in Christ. And the boldness here is not a word that indicates brashness. It's not a word that indicates the kind of boldness that we sometimes think. We've talked about that word before. Uh, when we use that word, sometimes we hear somebody say something and we say, boy, that was pretty bold of him to say that. And by that we mean it was not necessarily kind. It might have been rather harsh, uh, rather brash. That's not the indication here by this word that is translated bold, but rather it indicates a plainness and an openness of speech where he did not hold back. He did not seek to please men, as he will say later on in this same section, but he was open and plain, and in God he was determined to speak the gospel of God even in persecution and conflict. And then he reminds them in verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error. Obviously what he taught was the truth. Nor did it come from uncleanness. What's he talking about here? It may very well be a contrast or a reference to the paganism and the pagan teachers that did teach in a way that actually encouraged uncleanness. Actually encouraged licentiousness. Encouraged the uh, the carnality that was associated with pagan rites. And so there were those who were saying that uh, your body, for example, uh, is not affected by anything that you do, or your spirit, rather, is not affected by anything your body does, and a separation. In other words, there was a kind of religious teaching that actually encouraged fornication, encouraged uh, pagan worship that involved uh, sexual activity. As we know at Corinth, from which Paul wrote this epistle, uh, you had that very thing in the Acro-Corinth and that uh, plateau high above the city where there were uh, pagan temples and prostitution was rampant. And paganism was associated with prostitution and other things. In other words, there was religion in Paul's day that was being taught and propagated that actually encouraged uncleanness, encouraged sexual uh, immorality. Paul said that's not what we preached. We didn't preach error. We didn't encourage uncleanness. We were not unclean ourselves, nor were we deceitful, nor was it in deceit. We did not try to fool you. We did not try to trick you, but we were open and bold in our God. And then he continues verse 4, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. This kind of reminds us of what he asked the Galatians on one occasion, you remember? He said, am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? Paul told the truth. 
taught the truth. But he did it because he loved those to whom he was teaching that truth. And we must also be determined to do the same. And when he talks about being approved by God, who tests our hearts, the word approved and the word test in that same verse are from the same original word. And they both mean, because they are from the same word, the word means to be, to be tested and approved after being tested. In other words, it alludes to the idea of metal that is being tried and that metal is put through the fire to determine whether or not it is pure, whether or not it will endure that fire. What Paul is saying here is that we have been tested and thus approved after being tested by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are worthy of it and God has uh, determined that we are and he has entrusted us with this mission. But also, he says, we're, we're not pleasing men in what we speak, but God, and then he uses the word test, the same word that is translated to prove from that same word, who tests our hearts. That reminds us that we need to appreciate the fact that God knows the hearts of every individual. And we know that he knows that, and you know that he knows that. But here's another reminder of that, that it does not really matter what men think of us. Oh, it doesn't mean that we need to... Uh, we need to preach or teach or conduct ourselves in such a way as to seek to try to antagonize people and just see how many people in one day we can upset or antagonize. Obviously, we're not to live like that. And when Paul said we don't, we don't preach to please men, he was not saying that we make every effort to make sure that we just tell it like it is in such a brash and, and uh, crass way that uh, men, uh, men uh, don't accept it readily. No. Uh, you're going to see that that's not the case as he reminds us about the nursing mother figure and the father who loves his children as he approached these Thessalonians. He gives us a clear example of how we should approach people. Point is, we need to have the right attitude, but by the same token, God knows our hearts and we dare not do anything less than God would have us do to be pleasing to God. And that includes holding back anything that would be unpalatable to men because we don't want to upset them. We don't want to upset people, but by the same token, we cannot withhold the truth to keep from doing so. That's the point. We need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We need to be individuals who are seeking to live at peace as much as in us lies with all men, as Paul elsewhere wrote in the Roman epistle. But at the same time, we cannot compromise truth in order to please men because God tests the heart and God knows the heart and God expects us to declare the whole counsel of God. Then he in verse 5 says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words. Flattery, what is it? It's a lie, really. If it's true flattery, it, it basically is a lie. It's the idea of trying to build somebody up generally with the idea of trying to gain something as a result of buttering them up or flattering them. Paul said we didn't use flattering words, and that's the only time that word translated flattering is used anywhere in the New Testament is right here. And it is the idea of a building up in a false way, in an embellishing way, in order to gain something. He said we didn't, we didn't come into Thessalonica and tell you how beautiful and wonderful your city is and all of these things. We did not use flattering words, as you know. We didn't do that. 
nor did we use a cloak for covetous. In other words, we didn't come seeking to gain uh, money or uh, filthy lucre as a result of our uh, preaching to you. And then he says something interesting. God is witness. God is witness. You remember when we studied the epistle of James, we talked about oaths and the kind of oaths that we are uh, not to use. And we're not to use the name of God in any kind of flippant way or to throw that, the name of God around in any kind of flippant way. Uh, but there are solemn oaths that we read about in Scripture, and we pointed that out at the time. And really, here is one of them, as he calls God to witness to the truthfulness of what he is saying. He is saying, in effect, as God is my witness, God is witness that what I am saying here is true. That oath, or that kind of oath, is not condemned in Scripture. It's the other kinds of oaths and the swearing and the flippant use of God and uh, the deceitfulness of the oaths that the Jews were in the habit of making as we talked about when we studied James. But here is simply an example of where he calls God to witness in a way that does not violate, does not violate the Scripture. Now notice in verse 6 he says, Nor did we seek glory from men. Don't you wish that everyone had this attitude that Paul clearly and confidently expresses here, that all people were not concerned at all about being glorified by their fellow man, and that everything they did was, was always in the best interest of others and always with God in view and with God's blessings in view and not to try to gain the accolades of men. And yet we know that pride, as we talked about this morning, goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, and many times there are those who may not initially in various positions in which they call attention to themselves and, and bring about accolades that, uh, that people give them. They may not initially uh, seek that glory, but if they take it in too much, they may become rather intoxicated by it to the point that ultimately their actions and attitudes are such to seek that glory from men. I've mentioned before that those who labor in the kingdom and whose appreciation for their labors is expressed by others, missionaries on the foreign field have, have long, sent, long been individuals who have been particularly appreciated by uh, members of the body of Christ. And that's not without, uh, without good reason because many times there are sacrifices that are made by those who are on foreign mission fields. But I remember when we were preparing to go to Malaysia, there was a former missionary who'd spent years in the field who came to our house here and talked about the big M, the big M concept that, uh, that missionaries have to be very, very careful about. And... Uh, what he was saying was, in the area where he was doing mission work, it was a beautiful area of the world. And I've been there, and it is. It's absolutely beautiful. And yes, you're sacrificing being away from, from family, and there are other sacrifices that are made. But what he was saying is, when I come home, people look at me and talk to me like, you're just, you are just 
It's amazing what you do. I can't, oh, we appreciate you so much for the sacrifices you were making. And what he was saying is, I don't really view them that much as sacrifices, but he said that's kind of the tendency sometimes that people have is to elevate the missionary to the big M status. And if the missionaries are not careful, sometimes they may start to drink that in a little too much and maybe imbibe that big M uh, spirit. And that can be a temptation. It can be a temptation. That's just one example of it. It could be a temptation for anyone in any particular area where he or she might receive compliment after compliment, encouragement, and so forth, that finally the glory from men seeks to take precedence or begins to take precedence over the glory from God. I've mentioned before that it seems to me that workers in the kingdom would do well to forget all of their so-called successes and let God remind them of them in the judgment. We'll all be better off if we would take that attitude, I think, wouldn't we? Let's not dwell on our so-called successes in any area and allow those successes to to uh, bring about a fall. Let's just forget about them, move on, and let God remind us of them in the judgment. Paul said, that was not our purpose. We were not seeking the glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's a particularly important statement. Because here was a man who was an apostle of Christ. Here was a man who could have come into Thessalonica with all the authority that one could possibly imagine. He could have come in in an authoritative way. He could have come in in a somewhat dictatorial way. He could have come in in a commanding and demanding way because he had that authority as an apostle. But he didn't. He didn't. But we were gentle among you, he says. We were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. There's something about leadership here that is being suggested that we need to fully appreciate. Who is the best leader in any area, really, that one could think about? The best leader is the one who gains and garners the respect of those who are under his leadership because he handles that leadership responsibility in the right way and not in that overbearing, dictatorial fashion but inspires those under his leadership to get the job done rather than demanding that they get it done. That's true in the church. Who are the best elders in the church? They're not the elders who who are consumed with the authority that they have been given suddenly when they're appointed as elders, but they are those who are humbled, who are humbled by that authority. Yes, they have authority. The elders have authority. But they're the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And what kind of example did he leave? The kind of example that elders should follow. doesn't mean that the only authority they have is by example. Some have made that contention. That's a false contention. They have authority. But they are also to be the kind of examples that they should be in living the Christian life and in leading in such a way as to be, as Paul was, as an apostle at Thessalonica, gentle as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And he'll get to the whole family here pretty soon, won't he, in terms of uh, mothers and fathers, as he comes to another, uh, another illustration in a few verses. Now here we are at verse 8. 
so affectionately longing. The one word in the original that is translated affectionately longing here in the New King James is that word that is used only here in the New Testament that we mentioned earlier. The only time it is used. And it simply expresses the kind of depth of affection that causes one to die for those for whom that affection is given. And that's the very thing he says here. He says, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Paul is clearly saying, I would lay down my life for any one of you brethren at Thessalonica. And that's the kind of attitude we should have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The willingness to lay down our lives for them. And then he says in verse 9, For you remember, brethren. In other words, he calls to mind an example of what he has just said. He said, Remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. That is no doubt an illusion, uh, at least in part to the fact that he was a tent maker and worked, no doubt, as a tent maker while he was preaching there at Thessalonica. So he was a tent-making preacher. That's where we get that expression, tent-making preachers, from the Apostle Paul. He was a tent-making preacher so that he wouldn't be a financial burden to any of them. And think of how much effort was expended. Though he had every right to receive money from them, he chose not to do so. We preach to you the gospel of God. Have you noticed how many times he's using this expression, the gospel of God? Back in verse 8, the gospel of God. Back in verse 2, the gospel of God. Now here in verse 9, the gospel of God. Well, it's the gospel of God, isn't it? It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel period without uh, those uh, qualifying expressions. It is the gospel of the kingdom. As Jesus uh, went about teaching in the villages and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23, calls it the gospel of the kingdom because it's the gospel about the kingdom that brings one into the kingdom, which is the church. But God is the author of the plan that was set in motion when Jesus Christ came to this earth and culminated in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so it is the gospel of God. And then he says in verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. How what? Devoutly, King James I think says holily, devoutly, justly, blamelessly. Devout toward God, just toward our fellow man, and blameless in terms of our view of ourselves because we sought to conduct ourselves in such a way so that we could not be justifiably blamed. Sinless? No, that's not what he's affirming. Blameless? Yes. And that's the way we should strive to be as well. Blameless. In other words, nothing that can be charged against us that would in any way compromise our influence as Christians. And that's what Paul is saying here. But notice something here in the end of verse two, or verse 10. We behaved ourselves among you who what? Who believe. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that belief is often used in that inclusive or comprehensive sense, including, obviously, their obedience. This is not faith only he's referring to here, is it? He's talking about those of you who believe, meaning those who have obeyed the gospel. It's equivalent to obeying the gospel. Remember, 
Remember what he said back in verse 9 of chapter 1? He wrote, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned from God uh, from, to God from idols. You turned. Now he says, among those of you who what? Who believe. Who are those who believe at Thessalonica? Those who what? Turned to God from idols. Believing involves what? To be a true believer, you've got to be a turner. <laughs> you've got to turn. You've got to repent. You've got to obey, in other words. So again, it's simply another illustration of how the word believe is often used in Scripture to include their obedience because he's writing to the very same people whom he said earlier had turned to God from idols. And then verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you how. Here's another member of the family now, as a father does his own children. Reminds us of Ephesians 6, 4 where Paul wrote, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Exhort them, comfort them, charge them, but don't discourage them by your dictatorial conduct. And so what a beautiful example he has given us of how we should conduct ourselves toward our brothers and sisters in Christ and how we should conduct ourselves toward our fellow man whom we are trying to teach the truth and before whom we are living the truth so that our example might have an impact. How are we to be toward them? Gentle as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, as a father does his own children, exhorting and comforting and charging. To what end? Well, here to those in the church, verse 12, our final verse tonight, that you would walk worthy of God. Charging them, exhorting them, comforting them, to the end that they would what? Walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. How many times does the scripture view the Christian life as a walk? Many times. Many passages. The Ephesian letter has several of them. One of them, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That particular one reminds us of this one, because walk worthy of God who what? Calls. Walk worthy of the calling. Walk worthy of God who what? Calls you. Calls you. Is calling you into his kingdom. I thought they were already in the kingdom. Well, they, they were at the time he wrote. But they were in the what? present phase of the kingdom. God is calling still, in a sense, all of us tonight who are in his kingdom, he's still calling us into what? Into the eternal phase of his kingdom. When the Lord, Jesus Christ, puts down all authority and all rule and all power, when he what? Delivers the kingdom to God the Father, will it be a different kingdom? No, but it will be the what? The eternal phase of the kingdom that will never end. And that will be the glorious, truly most glorious phase of the kingdom. And so God is calling those who were in, are in the kingdom now, the church, into the what? Eternal phase of that kingdom and into what? Glory beyond comprehension. Glory beyond comprehension. As Brother Tom prayed in his beautiful prayer today, 
difficult for the finite mind to comprehend the beauties and the glories that await us in that eternal phase of the kingdom. We're being called. If we're in the kingdom now, we are continually being called by living the gospel and obeying the gospel, having obeyed it initially, into that glorious phase of the kingdom of heaven when the Lord comes again. But you can't be among those who are being called into that eternal phase of the kingdom until you enter the initial phase, the present phase of that kingdom, the church of Christ here and now. And to do that, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If there's someone here tonight who hasn't done those things, we plead with you to do it. If you need to come home to your first love, that you might again be among those who are being called to glory, knowing that you're faithful once again, having repented of sin that needs to be repented of publicly, having prayed with us as we pray with you and for you to the God of heaven to forgive you, then you can know as you leave here tonight that again, you are now on your way to that glorious phase of the kingdom of heaven. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage you?